0: Hello, everyone. Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, Welcome to Joe's Pub. My name is Amanda Stern. I am the host and curator of the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series, which you are currently attending, just so you know. Um, It's a very good thing to clap for. Um, Tonight marks the launch of a very special partnership between this series and Yaddo, the artist colony in Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, we'll be doing three shows a year together, uh, working only with Yaddo-affiliated artists like James Baldwin and Carson McCullers, who are considering doing the next show. So, uh, but I'll keep you posted about that. Um, so this is the first of those shows, um, and that technically makes tonight an historical event. Um, because if you put the word first in front of anything, it's very impressive. Um, like first lady, first born. First class, first name basis, first law of thermodynamics. You know, you get my drift. Um, So uh, because Yaddo is an artist community, we decided that tonight's theme would be community. So by virtue of you being here, you are uh, unwittingly participating in the theme. So thank you. Um, I have been to Yaddo 20 minus 18 times. um, And each time, summer, I might add, which is very impressive. It's very impressive. I've been to Yaddo in the summer. Okay, you don't understand, but uh, you'll understand when you apply for the summer and you don't get in, you'll understand then. Um, Anyway, so I've come away with a new community of friends um, and a strange yet beautiful um, compulsion to play Mafia, which um, is a very community-oriented game before all the killing starts Um, so um, Lucius the band is here for the second time in about two months that's how much I love them um, we're gonna—I'm changing the name to Happy Lucius Ending. Um, so they're gonna kick off the show. Uh, the songstress duo Lucius is fronted by Jess Wolf and Holly Lasig. The two met in 2006 while at school in Boston. A year later, they relocated to Brooklyn, where they wrote and recorded their debut album, Songs from the Bromley House. They've been compared by the New York Times as the next Feist, and Seventeen magazine describes them as alluring and magnetic. The band recently finished their sophomore record with illustrious producer Tony Berg of Beck and Amy Mann fame, who just played the Yaddo Benefit, I'll have you know, Um, and that album is due out this summer. Please give a very warm welcome to my favorite band, Lucius.
1: We're Lucius, we're happy to be back here with Amanda. i hard from Amanda and um, that was to sing this next song it's off of our debut record songs from the Brownlee house and we have um, copies out front whatever you want to donate to the cause whatever you want to throw at us you know we take what you got
0: That's right. That's that's what I'm talking about. Um so the um the next uh performer is Suzanne Bocanegra, she's an artist. Wow, that's kind of amazing. All I have to say is she's an artist, and, like, applause. I wish that happened for me. Um, Suzanne Bocanegger is an artist, living and working in New York City. A recipient of the Rome Prize, she has received grants from the Pollack Krasner Foundation, the Tiffany Foundation, the Joan Mitchell Foundation, the National Endowments for the Arts. I mean, okay, we get it. It's... And the New York Foundation for the Arts. If that wasn't enough, just... Wanted to throw another in there. Um, a major show of Bocanegra's work titled I Write the Songs, opened at the Tang Museum in July 2010, and will be traveling to site to Santa Fe in the summer of 2011. It's my great pleasure to give you Suzanne Bocanegra.
2: When I still lived in Texas, when I was in college, uh, my friends and I went to see this born-again preacher who drew huge crowds. His name is Bill Gothard. I looked him up online the other day, and uh, it wasn't clear to me whether he's still around or not, but I saw a lot of sites denouncing him as a cult leader, which makes sense, because he sort of preyed on young college guys. They would become one of Bill's men, which meant they would drop out of school, break up with their girlfriends, get in a suit and tie, and follow him around the country ushering in these huge events and Bible studying like crazy he also had this racket where he'd get you to pay hundreds of dollars to take a special course that would change your life. It involved an extra jumbo red three-ring binder, lots of charts in it that all had Jesus on the top. My friends and I were curious so we went. There were thousands of people in the audience and as he was speaking his image was projected on a giant movie screen he talked about how a woman must obey her husband even if he told you to do something incredibly stupid because your husband was your own personal flesh and blood incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth. And if you weren't married, your dad was your Jesus substitute. And I remember thinking, huh, something might be a little wrong with this picture when I tried to imagine my dad as my Jesus. Really, I mean, a frightening thought. Oh, and... Bill himself, he never married or had a family, or in spite of the fact that he was the expert. But what fascinated me about Bill Gothard was he painted while he talked. I wondered sometimes if that isn't how he hypnotized those handsome young men. Even my roommate Josephine and I, we ended up scraping together all that money and receiving our very own three-ring binder. This is before I found out that my dad was supposed to be my personal Jesus on earth. Anyway, Bill Gothard, the thing that was so seductive about Bill Gothard was watching his hands make that art while he taught us the Jesus charts. He would take color and slowly begin to spread it, lots of color over the whole ground. And then he would add more and more, and slowly he would begin to make marks here, there, as I remember it, harsh, mean, black marks, slashing verticals as he was telling us about (coughs) evil mankind and damnation and waywardness. Mm, It was a real animated action painting. And then, for the finale, to make the world right, to heal its wounds with a few deft strokes, he made the violent black lines into trees. And suddenly, dare I say, miraculously, some nasty-looking purple lines up in the middle became a three-dimensional cross floating over the horizon. In an instant, like magic, the wicked and messy and beautiful abstraction became a hideous, trite piece of calendar art. (laughs) Even my gullible 19-year-old self knew it was an embarrassing picture. A cringeworthy, conventional sunset with a cross Hovering over a horizon. Absolutely the corniest thing you could imagine. But up until that very last moment, it was mesmerizing to watch him paint. His gestures, watching what came out of his hands, watching it all come together, watching him making. That was real seduction. Suzanne Bocanegra.
0: So, the final author of the night um, is also pretty cute, but married. Um, so, there goes that. What'd you say? You're getting separated? I'm sorry. Hmm. Call me. Um, Born in 1964, Amor Tolls was raised in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. He graduated from Yale College and received an MA in English from Stanford University. Um, not the best resume. For- he's a principal at an investment firm in Manhattan where he lives with his wife and two children. But he's getting separated. Um, Mr. Tolls is an ardent fan of early 20th century painting 1950s jazz, 1970s cop shows rock and roll on vinyl obsolete accessories, manifestos breakfast pastries, pasta, liquor snow days, Tuscany hmm, Pro- uh, Provence, Disneyland, Hollywood the cast of Casablanca uh, 007, Captain Kirk Bob Dylan, early, mid and late phases the wee hours, card games, cafes cookies made by both of his grandmothers but especially Amanda Stern oh my god so embarrassed so thank you oh my god Um, his only other published work is a short story cycle called The Temptations of Pleasure (laughs) published in 1989 in Paris Review 112 it is my pleasure to give you my future husband Amor Tolles
3: thank you that's his work Thank you, thank you. This is genuinely the first time I've read in public, so I apologize in advance. I, my, actually, uh, I'm going to read from my first novel, which is coming out at the end of July, published by Viking. My editor is is here tonight, and and in the bio that was just read, uh, that Captain Kirk is one of my heroes. And this is this is actually uh, shocking, but. Chekhov, the author, appears in my book, and the name is misspelled, actually, in the final edition. But the the good news is that it's spelled like Chekhov in Star Trek, which is how the mistake actually (laughs) occurred, no doubt. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm going to be reading from the first chapter uh, of the book, uh, which really focuses, it's told, from the perspective of a 25-year-old woman in New York in the late 1930s. It was the last night of 1937... With no better plans or prospects, my roommate, Eve, had dragged me back to the hot spot, a wishfully named nightclub in Greenwich Village that was four feet underground. From a look around the club, you couldn't tell that it was New Year's Eve. There were no hats or streamers, no paper trumpets. At the back of the club, looming over a small, empty dance floor, a jazz quartet was playing love-me-and-left-me standards without a vocalist. The saxophonist, a mournful giant with skin as black as motor oil, had apparently lost his way in the labyrinth of one of his long, lonely solos, while the bass player, a coffee-and-cream mulatto with a small, deferential mustache, was being careful not to hurry him. Boom, 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 he went, at half the pace of a heartbeat. The spare clientele were almost as downbeat as the band. No one was in their finery. There were a few couples here and there, but no romance. Anyone in love or money was around the corner at Cafe Society, dancing to swing. In another 20 years, all the world would be sitting in basement clubs like this one, listening to anti-social soloists explore their inner malaise. But on the last night of 1937, if you were watching a quartet, it was because you couldn't afford to see the whole ensemble or because you had no good reason to ring in the new year. We found it all very comforting. We didn't really understand what we were listening to, but we could tell that it had its advantages. It wasn't going to raise our hopes or spoil them. It had a semblance of rhythm a surfeit of sincerity. It was just enough of an excuse to get us out of our room and we treated it accordingly, both of us, wearing comfortable flats and a simple black dress, though under her little number, I noted that Eve was wearing the best of her stolen lingerie. Eve Ross. Eve was one of those surprising beauties from the American Midwest. In New York, it becomes so easy to assume that the city's most alluring women have flown in from Paris or Milan, but they're just a minority. A much larger covey hails from the stalwart states that begin with the letter I, like Iowa and Indiana and Illinois. Bred with just the right amount of fresh air, rough housing, and ignorance, these primitive blondes set out from the cornfields looking like starlight with limbs. Every morning in early spring, one of them skips off her porch with a sandwich wrapped in cellophane, ready to flag down the first greyhound headed to Manhattan, this city where all things beautiful are welcomed and measured and, if not immediately adopted, then at least tried on for size. One of the great advantages that the Midwestern girls had was that you couldn't tell them apart. You can always tell a rich New York girl from a poor one, and you can tell a rich Boston girl from a poor one. After all, that's what accents and manners are there for. But for the native New Yorker, the Midwestern girls all looked and sounded the same. Sure, the girls were from various social classes and were raised in different houses and went to different schools, but they shared enough Midwestern humility... But the gradation of their wealth and privilege were obscure to us. As a result, to us, they all looked like hayseeds, unblemished, wide eyed, and God fearing, if not exactly free of sin. Hailing from somewhere at the upper end of Indiana's economic scale, Eve was the natural beauty with fine features and blue eyes. True, she was only five foot five, but she knew how to dance in two inch heels, and she knew how to kick them off as soon as she sat in your lap. That New Year's, we started the evening with a plan of stretching $3 as far as it would go. We weren't going to bother ourselves with boys. More than a few had had their chance with us in 1937, and we had no intention of squandering the last hours of the year on latecomers. We were going to perch in this low-rent bar where the music was taken seriously enough that two good-looking girls wouldn't be bothered and where the gin was cheap enough that we could each have one martini an hour. We intended to smoke a little more than polite society allowed, And once midnight had passed, without ceremony, we were going to a Ukrainian diner on 2nd Avenue where the late night special was coffee, eggs, and toast for 15 cents. But a little after 9.30, we drank 11 o'clock's gin, and at 10, we drank the eggs and toast. We had two bits between us, and we hadn't had a bite to eat. It was time to start improvising. Thank you.